Good morning, church. Good to have you here this morning. There it is. <coughs> Turn, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, uh, pull them on out. Turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love and care for us. Even though much of our lives, most of our lives, is marked with our rebellion. You have reached out through the form of your son Jesus on the cross to reconcile us to you. We praise you. We honor you for this truth. And it's because of this truth that we gather and we seek to be transformed by your spirit. Seek to align our hearts and our, our action to your word. To proclaim your goodness to this world. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Philippians <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation in that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same, same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> Last week, we, we looked at what, what I've been kind of calling the, the introduction to the body. This isn't really the right way to, to describe it, but Paul's pattern in his letters, uh, how Paul writes his letters, maybe is a better way to say it, is that he writes his letters for the purpose of giving instruction, giving exhortation, giving reproof, things He's either trying to tell us things that we should be doing or putting into our lives or telling us things that we should be taking out of our lives or the actions. He's, his letters are very action-oriented. 
And we, we got into the body of the letter, the body proper of the letter to the Philippians in verse 12. But in, from verses 12 to 26, Paul's, he's not giving exhortation. He's not teaching anything yet. He's just, he's giving his own example. And I said, suggested last week that he gives this example so that, so that we might take what he has, has experienced and use that as kind of the lenses by which we should understand the rest of the letter. I talk a lot, especially when we're going systematically through books of the Bible, I talk a lot about how context matters. We need to know the, the, the progression of thought within any book that we're reading in the Bible so that we don't misrepresent what's being said. And I think that we can we best understand today's passage, again, in light of what we saw last week and the week before, putting on this kind of these, these glasses so that we can see clearly uh, Paul's thoughts. So to summarize verses 12 to 26, to summarize verses 12 to 26, I think here's what Paul is telling us. Paul is telling us that he has faith in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. He has faith in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. So, so what that means is that Paul, he not only believes that God is in control, but that belief leads to action. And that's what we mean when we say faith. Faith isn't just a cognitive belief. It's not just that I, that I know something or I've learned something. It's that that knowledge then affects the way I live my life. I could use a math example. Say you're, you're learning when you're a child, you learn that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we could say that I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if, if I have a test, and on that test somebody gives me that question, 2 plus 2, what does 2 plus 2 equal? And I write 6. Then I don't have faith that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That my actions have not been changed by what is by what my knowledge has. And so Paul's knowledge is that God is sovereign. He is in control of, of the situation of life. Not a puppet master, not pulling the strings, but, but moving and, and changing the flow of history through the actions of mankind. And because Paul believes this with his mind, he believes it cognitively, he then acts it out. And this is what gives him confidence. in prison, the gospel is being hindered. His Paul's life is now being hindered by this imprisonment. And Paul says, no. No, God is in control, and so therefore, I can trust this. And so he keeps on preaching. He keeps on seeing the boldness of the people who are not in prison as a, as a positive thing. So Paul has this, this faith in the, in the control of God irregardless of the life that is going on around, of life that's going on around him, irregardless of his suffering or his imprisonment or his his beatings and, and shipwrecks. It doesn't matter. Paul is confident that God is in control. Now one thing that we might say as we as we kind of come out of that section and, and think about the the language that we see in verses twelve to twenty six is we might ask the question, well what where does Paul talk about the sovereignty of God? Where where does he say that? Because it's not necessarily laid out. It's not talked 
He doesn't use the word God is sovereign in the text. But I think it's kind of in the background. And, and, and we do this all the time, but we just don't think about it necessarily. We do this all the time. Let me, let me give you an example from this past week. Right, I could probably go up to many of the people who are in this church and I could talk about uh, the game that happened on Thursday, the preseason Browns game. We could talk about how excited we were that the Browns looked so good. Oh, it's exciting. But I don't need to tell you that the reason why it's really exciting is because for the past 20 years the Browns have been terrible. Because it's, it's, a, it's an assumed knowledge of people who live in Northeast Ohio that the Browns are bad. And now that there's something different, it changes things. Let me give you a different example. Maybe one that I think is a little bit closer to what we're talking about here. In 2020, we're going to vote for a new president and a lot of other officials, senators, House representatives, things like that. We're going to vote. And probably in the next year and a half or so, as we gear up to that election, inevitably every single person in this room is going to talk about about who they're going to vote for or if they're going to vote or, or the, the ridiculous nature of our system. But not, a, not, not very many of us, if any, will talk about the structure of our, of our democracy, why we vote and, and what the purpose is and, and why the Founding Fathers set it up in this manner. We won't talk about that behind the scenes that kind of gives the vote purpose. We'll talk about the, the product. We'll talk about the, the outcome of the fact that we live in a system like this. And I think the same is true for what Paul is doing. Paul, Paul lives in a world where he recognizes, and, and so does the early church, by the way, that God is in control. And so he doesn't need to necessarily teach it every time he talks about it. He does teach about the sovereignty of God. But he, he doesn't necessarily every single time he does it because it's part of the mindset of the early church, that God is in control. And God is in control, not just in control, but he's in control in the midst of suffering. And now this is what I think Paul is actually teaching, that God is in control, even when it doesn't seem like God is in control. And so then he's going to turn his attention in verse 27. And it seems like Paul is making a very big jump. In, in verses 12 to 26, he's not talking about our own actions. He's not talking about the things that, are, that we are doing, the life that we are living. That has not caused Paul to be in prison. But rather, God's control has caused, caused, God to be, or caused Paul to be in prison, caused Paul to suffer. But then he's going to shift, and he's going to say, he's going to say this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the first exhortation in the book of Philippians. Let your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the ESV, it says only let your manner of life. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the greatest transla translation. It's, it's probably the most literal. Only implies that it's a, it's a restriction as opposed to a, a command to go do that particular thing. So, so when he says, only let your manner of life uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, really what he's saying is do everything so that your life, or so that your, yeah, the manner of your life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, 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 so turn everything in your life towards this goal. And what this means on a very simple basis is, is turn your life towards righteousness. 
Turn your life towards righteousness and holiness. We're told in the Old Testament that we are to be holy because God is holy. We should never discount because our salvation isn't isn't brought about by us. We should never discount that that our righteousness is part of our salvation. But it's just not at the it's just not at the front end of it. Right? This is what this is how we think about salvation. I think many of us we think about salvation as if it is a it's a scale, a, a, you know, a balancing scale. Not like you stand on the scale, but it's a balancing scale. And 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 we think, okay, here's all the bad things that are on my left, all the bad things in my life, and that's going to tip my. It's, it, it, so I, I've sinned, I've lusted, I've, I've cheated, I've lied, I've stolen. You know, it's just a balance the scale over here. And then and then along comes Jesus. And what Jesus does is he comes and he he makes a sacrifice, and then that writes the scale. It balances the scales, and then for the rest of my life, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to just have more good deeds than I have bad deeds. And so at the end of my life, if I have more good deeds than I have bad deeds after Jesus has rescued me from the bad things at the end, then, then I'm good, right? That's, that, I, think, I think a lot of times this is how we think about salvation. That's just totally wrong. I think rather it's more like dangling from a rope. Imagine, right, for a minute that God is in heaven, and he's got a rope, and he's holding it. This is our relationship with God. He's holding this rope. He created us. He's, we're, he created us to be in relationship. He's holding the rope. We're at the bottom. We're holding the rope. And below us is about 10,000 10, miles of, of nothing. And when we get to the bottom of that 10,000 miles, we're splat and we're dead. Right? And so we, 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 in perfect relationship with God, we're hanging onto this rope. And then what we do with our sin is we, is we take the knife of sin out of our pocket and we cut the rope. And we plummet. Right, and, and then what we do with our righteousness, our righteousness is us holding onto this rope, and we think, if I just hold on tighter, as I plummet to my death, I will, I'll rescue myself. But, but that's, that's silly, right? What does Jesus do? Jesus comes in, he throws a new rope down. He throws a new rope down that is no longer uh, able to be cut by my knife of sin. And what, 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 my belief, my faith in Christ is, is me letting go of my own righteousness or my ability to feel that I'm righteous, letting that go as I plummet to my death, holding on to it, let it go, reach out and grab the, the, the support of Jesus. It's not a balanced scale. If, if, if it's a balanced scale, the one sin that's in my life, one sin that's in my life weighs an infinite amount. And no, none of my good deeds, none of my righteousness, none of my holiness can outbalance that. It's not a balancing scale. It's the, it's the work of Christ, period. We are justified by faith in his work, in what he has done. He has done it all. This is the difficulty of Christianity. It's, it's, it sounds impossible. I, I need to be rescued because I'm... Because I'm a sinner. So my rescuing should have something to do with my sin. But it doesn't. It's all of Christ. It's only his work. So then what is the rest of the Bible talking about when it calls us to holiness? It calls us to righteousness. What in the world is Paul talking about here when he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying, be, be holy so that you can be saved. You are already saved. You are already rescued. Now in a response, in a faith response to the, the truth that you have been saved by his blood, 
we change our lives and are transformed to be worthy of his calling. But did you notice what Paul says? He doesn't say be worthy of Christ. He says be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is the good news of Christ. Be worthy of evangelism. Anybody ever think that if I, if I talk to this person, if I tell somebody about Jesus, they're going to look at me and go, but you're not, you're not good. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a tall order. By the way, it's an impossible order. We'll talk about that as we go through Philippians, how, how it's not, it's, again, it's not me who's, who's changing my life, who's transforming my life, but this is what we're called to. We're called to worthy living. This is why it's so important. This is why I say all the time, get your Bibles out. I don't just do it because that's what, you know, it's okay, we're supposed to read the Bible. Get your Bible. Sports game, sports game. No. We, we read our Bibles so that we can hear God speaking to us. We pray so that we can ask God questions. We can, we can, we can have conversation with God. We fellowship with other believers to grow closer to, to his creation and grow closer to what he has called us to be and, and be pushed forward in the in our in our righteous holy lives that we're supposed to be living again not for salvation's sake but because of a response to the salvation that we have in God the life's worthy that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and then he does something very interesting again notice that he is not saying anything here about salvation not saying anything here about salvation. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, either way, I may hear, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here is what Paul assumes will happen as we fix our attention upon living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning when we hear reproach, we do our best to change. When we, when we are, when we, when we're called out because of sin, whether by scripture or by brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we, we do what we can to, to change the course of our lives. We are transformed as Romans 12 says, transformed by the, by the working of God in our lives so that we can be living sacrifices to him. That as we do this, something interesting will happen. Not, not might happen, but it will happen. It's a natural byproduct. We will stand firm together. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes, again, we get things backwards. We, we start with the wrong thing. We go, how can we be unified? How can we go together as a church? Program, program, program. Why, aren't we, why don't we feel connected? Because our, our first focus is never on each other. It's always on God. It's always on God. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 13. The end of John chapter 13, he gives this new commandment. He says, love one another. And then the world will know you because of my love. Because of the love that you share with each other. Verse 28 of Philippians, he says not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. Again, doesn't it seem like it's just this strange shift? 
Jesus tells us another thing about when we love him. He says, if you follow my commandments, you will love one another, and therefore the world will know you. <laughs> but he also tells us that when we love Jesus, we will be hated by the world. It is the, it is the right and natural response that the world has for us. Sin hates righteousness. I think we've all experienced that in our lives. As we as we come into church, there's always things, right? There's always there's always excuses and reasons not to change, not to do this, not to be righteous and holy because that's better or this is that or whatever. We have excuse after excuse after excuse because sin hates righteousness, and the world is sin. And so the world hates righteousness, which is Jesus. And so if we love Jesus, the world is going to hate us because it first hated Jesus. The, the natural response that the world has towards Christianity is hatred and therefore persecution. And this is what Paul is talking about when he looks at his life. It is normal. It is natural. It is the, it is the regular response that the world will have towards Paul ministering to the gospel, that the world will try to stop him, stone him. Uh, put him in prison. Hate him. And so therefore it shouldn't surprise us. It does, but it shouldn't surprise us when persecution happens, when suffering happens. And so here's what Paul says. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Unify together under that idea. And when you do, you will suffer. And don't be afraid of it. Now, I don't think that Paul means don't be afraid of it like if you're going to be stoned to death, you're not allowed to be afraid of the pain that you will endure. You are allowed to be afraid of that because, ouch. You are allowed to be afraid of the physical trouble that you will go through. Now, I think that there's added blessings that God will protect you from some of that pain that you're going to experience. You're, you're allowed to have fear of that. What you're not allowed to fear is that that pain, that suffering, that trial, that persecution is not part of God's plan. It's not being used by God to advance the gospel, to change and transform your own life, to change and transform the lives of the people around you. You cannot look at the, at the, at the pains that, that the world inflicts on Christianity and think for one second that God is not still in control. You can't, like the Philippians apparently were doing, look at Paul's situation and say, I'm afraid we're losing. Do not be frightened by anything. And then he says something that's really, oh man, I don't know if we like it. I don't know if we like what Paul says next. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ Jesus that you should not only believe in him, also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here. So here's what Paul says. He says, you, you, are, you are blessed that you suffer. Why? Because the world hates righteousness. Sin hates righteousness. So therefore, it must hate you if you are living a life worthy of the gospel. It is an evidence, Paul says, 
when your opponents persecute you and you suffer because of Christ, it is an evidence of their destruction and your salvation. Meaning that if you, if, if a person busts in this door and comes in and arrests us for being here, worshiping God and loving Jesus, it's God's stamp of approval in our lives. It's something that we can hang on to and point to. And say, Look, I'm suffering for the sake of Jesus. I am saved. And those who are persecuted will receive the punishment that is due them. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're a Christian and you suffer, that means that you're saved. It doesn't mean that if I drive down the road 155 miles an hour through through Creston and I pass the school zone when it goes down to 20 and I keep on speed and I get thrown in prison, that I can say, oh, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. No, that's, that's my own foolishness having its own results. But if I suffer because I proclaim Jesus, then I can hold to that as an evidence of his work in my life, which is a blessing, right? To know and have confidence that what I talk about is real, it's true. I think it's important to take one, just to have one little note. We should not seek persecution. We should not, we should not seek it out. Meaning we should not put ourselves, purposefully put ourselves in situations where I can say Jesus and somebody's going to hate me for it. I don't think that that's what we're called to do. Not necessary. But I also think that if we examine the church as a whole and we don't see persecution happening, we should really question what we're doing. For a very long time, at least in the American church, the world has been okay with us. And Scripture is so incredibly clear. The New Testament is so incredibly clear. But it says it so many times that the world is going to hate you. You're going to you're going to suffer. You will be persecuted. Paul says it, it, it's going. You're not only are you going to believe, but you're also going to suffer for the sake. It's all over Scripture. So why is it not all over the church today? That's a scary thought to me. It makes me wonder how many of us are really living lives worthy of the gospel. Again, I'm not telling us that we should seek out persecution because the reality is that persecution never happens universally in, the, in, in church history. It happens to pockets of people. Yes, maybe maybe universally you're, you're losing some rights of freedom. You know, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to be in the in the city anymore in Rome. Whenever Rome casts the people out of the Christians out of Rome, they, but but really, not all Christians are stoned to death. Not all Christians are put to death. Right there's select few people, but as we look at the whole, you can see a general a general maybe murmur of persecution throughout the whole body of believers in the, in the book of Acts. And in church history, we see periods of time where persecution flares up and backs and flares up again. And yet, we can look back at, at, at the church's history over the past couple hundred years and we can go, but what are we doing? Have we become completely complacent? Have we have we gotten to a point where it where our lives in response to the salvation that we share matters not? 
And we get to the point where the fear of persecution actually drives us away from saying truth. Not even saying truth, but living it out. I, I think that I'm not I'm not trying to be prophetic here. I, I think that I think that the trajectory of, of American culture is is moving away, moving more towards secularism and moving away from Christianity. And the church is doing two things. One part of the church is going, okay, we're just going to follow you. And the other part of the church is is realizing that what we've done for the past 50 to 100 to 200 years has been to make sacrifices to truth. And as this happens, we start to see more and more hatred coming up. And one of the things that makes me afraid as, as, a, as a pastor, as a Christian, is that I hear people in the church who say things like, how can we avoid this? How can we stay away from this person? How can we shift the cultural mentality to be so that we don't get to the point where Christianity is illegal and that people are persecuted for their faith? This, I think, is the wrong response. Rather, to see what is happening in our culture today as, as, as what's normal. And what we've experienced in the past hundred or so years is abnormal. Again, we don't seek persecution out. But as we see persecution coming, let us not be frightened in, in anything by our, our opponents. But rather see it as a sign and a seal that, that God is at, is at work in the lives of the church today. Again, it's not necessarily a message that we look to and say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we're going to suffer. But isn't that exactly what Paul just said? It's been granted. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Like I said, we don't seek persecution. But as we seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, the natural response that the world has towards us is hatred and persecution. And we can stand firm in this truth, knowing that this is God's plan. This is his purpose. This is how he will move and advance the gospel. So that change is real in our Heavenly Father, we cast ourselves on the work of your Son, Jesus. We read in Scripture their story after story of, of what that means. That our sinful nature has severed our relationship with God for Christ, because of your love, has given himself so that we might be reconciled to you, not because 
he's going to change us to right our wrongs, but because he has righted our wrongs. Because his work is sufficient. And when we can cast our, our arms out knowing that we have been redeemed by him and him alone, that we are freed and released from the bondage that we have to sin and death, We desire with all of our hearts to live lives worthy of the, of the gospel. We pray that we pray that as we as we seek your spirits moving and changing in our lives, we pray that we would be willing and open to receive it. That it would drive us to our knees in prayer, our, our the realization of our desperate need for you. That it would that it would move and transform us to to eradicate sin and to put it to death in our lives. Not, again, not because it will save us, but because you would save us. Lord, as this happens, draw us together as a church. Not just, not just here at Christ Church, but all over. Draw us together and, 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 and allow us to shine forth your light and your truth into this world more effectively to win more people to you. And when persecution and suffering happen, let us not hide from you. Let us not turn aside and change the way we think and the way we reason. Let us not let us not alter one single truth of your word to make our lives more simple. But instead, embrace the suffering as an evidence of our salvation and as an evidence of your work in bringing about justice in this world. Embolden us, strengthen us, so that we can stand firm in 